There are several prior instances of people approaching me and going, Hey Ryan, you like a lot of weird occult movies, what's your take on rock and roll? And I had to confess that I hadn't seen it yet. And like, really? Because it, it seems like it's the kind of tripped out nonsense that you'd be totally into. So, last week, Cheryl and I were working on the uh, episode for Fire and Ice. Cheryl suggested, hey, what about this rock and roll thing? I just stumbled across it, and it seems like this weird little ladies cult movie. This is one of the reasons why you brought me onto the show in the first place. And it was just like, hey, I gotta be in my bond about Fire and Ice. Let's do that. But, you know, next week. So, it's next week. We're doing rock and roll. My name is Ryan. Surreal Deep Dive. And I'm welcoming back once again my sister Cheryl. Hello, Cheryl. Thanks for coming back. Of course. I'm so excited to be here in my apartment. Yeah, I came to your place. Yeah, so rock and roll. Yeah. Um, sorry, my brain is still processing what we just saw. I'm still like sloshing through all of the random superfluous nipples and butts. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this that is comparable to other things that were happening in animation during the 80s. I, some things made me think of Don Bluth. Some things made me think of Ralph Bakshi. Some things made me think of heavy metal. There's a lot of things going on. There's also a bit of a Disney afternoon vibe, and especially in the character designs. Oh, yeah, 100%. I can see why when I was talking to people about this, they were like, yeah, I confused it with, like, a Goofy movie. Like, no. No, never. But also, yeah, I could see why that would make you a very confused person. So, yeah, while we're still shell-shocked over seeing rock and rolls the first time for both of us... Yeah, uh, we were total Waldos about it. Yeah, this movie uses Waldo as a pejorative term for nerd, too, so I, I I guess it's a thing. Yeah, and we have to clearly bring it back since, you know, the 80s, that's where we come from. So let's, uh, let's not be Waldos about this Waldo situation. Alright, uh, plot recap. Alright, the American release of this film, which is the one that we watched, this film is out of print on physical media, and there weren't any streaming services that had it at the time, but, uh, Amazon would rent it to us for, like, 20 bucks. But there's also a pirated version on YouTube, and we're like, we're watching the pirated version on YouTube. It wasn't worth $20. It was definitely entertaining, but I'm not spending that kind of money on that. Yeah, so we're watching the bastardized, censored uh, American version. Uh, more on that later. Wait a second, that was censored? Alterations were made at the studio's behest. I will be discussing that later. Oh my god, was it, did it involve the side boob? There was so much side boob. Oddly enough, they weren't that weirded out by the side boob, like other things. Anyways, among the things is that the American release has a prologue that gives you an info dump about everything that happened leading up to the plot of this film. And you see, a nuclear war has destroyed the human race, leading to the creation of humanoid animals. As you discussed, these people are incredibly humanoid, but it's like a goofy movie type of humanoid where they look like people, but they have like dun colored skin and instead of a human nose, they have a little beagle snout. Yeah, they got the muzzle thing going on, and then, like, I guess all of them were descended from mice, because they have, like, almost human ears, but they don't have the lobes, so they're supposed to be, like, mice ears. Except for the club owner, I think his name is Mylar or something, he has, like, Mickey Mouse ears. Yeah, he was horrible. Yeah, our uh, main villain in this is named Mock. He is a legendary and aging rock musician, embittered by his fading celebrity, seeking to destroy the world. (laughs) That's the next logical solution. Yeah. In a twisted desire for revenge, he's hunting for a special voice that can unleash an interdimensional demon. 
Mock also believes that this process will make him immortal. Once again, this is in the info dump of the prologue of the film. After traveling the world in a fruitless quest to find this voice, Mock returns to his hometown of Ometown, a remote storm-ravaged community noted for its unique power plant. At a local nightclub, Omar, Angel, Dizzy, and Stretch perform to a very tiny audience. They're not too crazy about the song that Omar is singing lead on, so Angel just kind of runs out and does her song and does a much better job. In the middle of this power ballad, this magic ring that Mock has while he's sitting in the back of the club starts just pulsating at him, and that's the signal that Angel has the voice he's been looking for. The voice of an angel. An angel that'll keep you hanging on the telephone. I'm so happy about this moment. Let's just just bask in it for a moment. (laughs) Alright, Mock invites the band to his mansion outside of town, where they're introduced to the roller-skating Schlepper brothers, Toad, Sleazy, and Zip. These are Mock's henchmen. They're giant goons who are uh, running around on roller skates all the time. Mock then incapacitates Omar as Stretch with what he calls an Edison ball. These are little things that sort of mesmerize you and you start hallucinating holographic imagery. I kind of appreciate that, like, it's named after the guy whose electricity kills people. Specifically elephants. Mock takes Angel on a tour through his garden and tries to convince her to join up with him. While ignorant of Mock's true motives, Angel refuses to abandon her band. Mock responds by kidnapping Angel and taking her to Nuke York, the site of his demonic summoning. This ritual is to take place disguised as a rock concert. Now, the band eventually snaps out of it once they're thrown out of Mock's mansion, and they decide to chase Mock, who has scurried away in his giant dirigible, in a stolen cop car. They are soon arrested by a border guard, who is voiced by a guy doing a terrible John Wayne impression. That's what was going on? That was my guess. He didn't call them pilgrims, but he did most of the other Wayneisms. Okay, fair. Okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah, while that's going on, Angel attempts to escape with the oblivious help of Cinderella, the sister of the roller skating Schlepper brothers. She's also a big goon, but lots of panty shots as she's just sort of gliding around in her roller skates. And she wants to go out clubbing, and Angel's like, yeah, let's go clubbing. We're going to sneak out in the vents, huh? That's how you do it? Let's Show me how. It. Let's do that thing you said. But yeah, no, this is when the movie suddenly is just like, butts. So many butts. As they're crawling through the air vents, Angel overhears Mock describe his evil plot to his computer. She also picks up that the demon can be defeated somehow. The computer cites this by uh, a magic incantation through... One voice, one heart, one song. Mock implores his computer to uh, tell him who can accomplish this feat, and the computer responds, No one. You know, if you're taking notes in your uh, plot construction, that is what is known as foreshadowing. Also, I mean, if your computer speaks in a monotone, and it suddenly really emphasizes one word, you'd think you'd pay attention to it. Mock's a little single-minded. Angel and Cinderella escape the building and hide out at Club 666, a zero-gravity dance club, which is where the Earth, Wind, and Fire song comes in. Now, they are unaware that the roller skating Schlepper brothers are tailing them. As this is happening, the band is bailed out by uh, Dizzy's aunt, Edith, who informs them of the club, telling them that Cinderella sports one of her tattoos, a 1495 special, which is like this winged heart thing. So they slip back into the club and start, you know, looking around, staring at the various cleavages and butts in order to find the tattoo, as Cheryl mentioned before. 
But now, nipples. But now, nipples. Angel is quickly recaptured, and then the band follows Angel's trail back to Mock's apartment, specifically Omar, and Mock uses an impersonator like the shape-shifting lady to trick Omar into thinking that Angel has fallen for Mock and has abandoned the group. I actually really enjoyed how they set her up, because they kept calling her, what's her name? And then that was her name, and I'm like... I really appreciate that for, like, a changeling monster. Yeah, a changeling monster name was her name. That's not bad, especially by the standards of the script. Mock captures the band and tortures them with an Edison ball in a giant one that they're, like, encased in this time in order to manipulate Angel into going along with his plans. Mock then brainwashes the band in order to keep them out of his hair, just sort of turns them loose while they're just walking around in this trance. And uh, when you're in a trance, you're really good at harmonizing. Yeah, the song that they perform while they're still under mock spell is it's a cheap trick song, but it's like done in this hippie, dippy, folk rock, pseudo Crosby Stills and Nash thing. And yeah, one of the stronger songs. We'll be talking about the music later on. You know, the Nuke York concert is a disaster. We don't even have a scene where it happens. We just like smash cut into a news report that talks about how there wasn't enough electricity in the city to make it happen. The demonic summoning requires a whole lot of juice. The computer tells Mock that the power plant in Omtown is the only place nearby that is sufficient to do the summoning in full. So off they go and they're blimp. While this is going on, Zip, one of the hench goons, is watching Cheryl's favorite part. Oh, God. Uncle Mikey. <laughs> Uncle Mikey, the sort of Captain Kangaroo kid show who uh, teaches kids about the division between good and evil. And he's animated in this. I'm not quite sure what technique they use, but it's kind of like stop motion construction paper cutouts, similar to the first episode of South Park. It's an evil gremlin that looks like the fat heads from Rocco's Modern Life, and I hate it so much. This causes Zip to express a childlike doubt over the morality of uh, Mock's situation, but Mock is naturally undeterred. The next concert in Omtown triggers a power surge that causes overloads all over the city, and this finally frees the band from their trance. Stretch immediately finds a poster for Mock's event and convinces Dizzy to hatch a scheme to save her. Omar declines to assist, convinced that Angel has betrayed the band for Mock, despite all the evidence of manipulation. Dizzy and Stretch crash the show in another stolen police car. I believe they recycled some of the animation there. Hopefully the police officer, they just did the same scene over and over again. They just removed the wheel from his hand. They crash the concert, but they're too late to halt the demonic summoning. Now a really cool-looking demon emerges from Mock's portal and begins just eating people and smashing things up. But uh, Omar has a change of heart, and he saves Angel from the demon's wrath at the last possible moment. The demon turns towards Omar, but a remorseful Zip sacrifices his life in order to save him. Angel tries to kill the demon with her singing, but she only succeeds in driving it back. At this point, Omar joins her in harmony, which does the trick. The demon falls back into the portal, which is a pentagram. They use the pentagram to summon him. And then while Mark is bemoaning this tragic turn of events for him, he is picked up and thrown into the interdimensional portal by a vindictive toad who is sad that Zip died. This is brother. I mean, I would throw people into a portal for you. Thanks, I appreciate that. At this point, Mock realizes that the one voice, one heart, one song bit meant that while 
A single voice couldn't activate the counterspell. Two voices united in purpose could. And I just really hammered into you in case you can't get it. It's so subtle as he's like screaming it while he's get, getting sucked into hell and they're like harmonizing above him. They look so bored as they look down at him too. They're just like just fallen already. The audience to the show believes that the battle was part of the stage theatrics, so Angel and the band complete their set in utter triumph, and that is the conclusion of the film. That's kind of tragic since four of them got eaten by a demon, and so it's like, is their family expecting a cut, or like, are they never, like, they're never coming home, they're in hell. Uh, let's go into the production of this film because damn yeah there's a there's a lot going on here that is very unique especially for the time period so what went into this this is the first animated feature from Nelvana, an animation studio who did a lot of millennial childhood favorites. Some of you Gen Z kids might be familiar with it for handling the international distribution for the Fairly Odd Parents. So they're still around. This is the first animated Canadian feature film in English and the second overall. So it took until 1983 for Canada to start putting out cartoon movies. This was conceived as a straight-up children's film in 1978. And what the fuck? Yeah, it was first entitled Drats, with an exclamation point. This was still focused on fuzzy mutant creatures forming a rock band in a post-apocalyptic society, but, you know, in a kid-friendly way. So, like, that weird Sonic Underground Heroes one. Maybe. They're just orphans looking for their mom, and also they're in a bit... I never saw the... I only saw the commercial. Yeah, the characters were much more cutesy and anthropomorphic, yeah, but it was still positioned that they evolved from rats after the human race was wiped out by our own hubris. Over the course of three years of development, the characters gradually became more humanoid, and Nelvana's buddies in Hollywood started encouraging the filmmakers to tailor their story to a more adult audience they felt would be more appropriate for that sort of thing. Rock and Roll was filmed without a well-defined script. The crew members worked on individual scenes independent of each other, trusting that plot holes could be filled out later on when they linked the scenes together. Now, believe it or not, this was customary practice in North American animated film from the 1930s to roughly that period. If you look back at, say, Disney feature films from that period, it explains a whole lot. The last major film to be animated with that technique was The Black Cauldron. Oh, The Black Cauldron. <laughs> Once again, a lot of things about The Black Cauldron make sense when you realize that the animation crew were working on the scenes without talking to each other and then just sort of stitching them together afterwards. Oh god, that poor movie. That poor book series. And then the first animated film with a full script, like a big boy Hollywood movie, that then they animated the film afterwards following the script was The Little Mermaid. And after that worked out, they just sort of kept it that way. Another win for the Trailer Park Disney movie. <laughs> For the animation itself, uh, over 200 animators, most of whom were fresh out of art school, were drafted for this film. Uh, there was almost no CGI. That technology was too primitive uh, to be effective at that time. So it's mostly photographic effects for the computer-looking bits, which there's quite a, a few of those in this movie. And they are sexy as hell if you like traditional animation. During the uh, vista where the band is traveling to Nuke York, there's this whole lot of, like, 
gorgeous backgrounds. The clouds in those scenes were created by placing cotton between two pieces of glass and a multiplane camera. For those of you who aren't up on your traditional um, cell animation techniques, the multiplane camera was invented at engineers at Disney to create perspective shots. The device allowed three different images to be adjusted simultaneously, so you could pan across a desert and then like a highway sign could move as your perspective is shifting realistically. So that's where you get all those shots and, you know, the days before CGI was a thing. You know, this uh, added naturalization to floating clouds or the moon cresting over horizon line. And like I said, it is sexy as hell. Yes, it is. The background images, which once again are gorgeous, were modeled after the artwork of John Gerard, who produced science fiction comics under the pen name of Moebius. If you had watched my episode on heavy metal that I did with Rachel, you already know the uh, Moebius's name, so this is another thing that he is tangentially involved in, at least as a source of uh, ripping off in this case. For the various fog effects, especially for the beginning of the film, airbrush cells were layered over live footage of cigarette smoke. Airbrush was also used for the clouds at first, but it was rejected for not looking cool enough. For the scene in Mock's garden, actual plants were pressed into the multiplane camera the same way that cotton was. At least 10 different techniques were used on the demon. I, I picked up some uh, rotoscoping effects. There was some multi-plank perspective shots in there. A whole bunch of other things, too. Yeah, it totally reminded me of the scene from Fantasia. It was Bald Mountain or whatever. Oh, yeah, with the Chernobog. Yeah. I mean, the Chernobog is one of those animation holy grails. I mean, nobody's been able to recreate that one perfectly. I'm still waiting for him to be a summons in um, Kingdom Hearts. Well, he was a boss battle in the first game, wasn't he? I want him to be a summons! I mean, I'm not against him being a summons, but... Yeah, models of vehicles and a small stage were constructed in order to give animators references. Uh, live models were filmed in order to give reference for scenes where the band performed. Allegedly, Omar was modeled after James Dean, but I don't see it. You hated Omar's design. Yeah, everything about him is terrible. He's an ugly uh, rectangle in every single shape he moves in. Yeah, I looked at him, and usually when I see, like, very humanoid anthropomorphic animals, I was just like, eh, a couple of furries realized themselves while they were watching this, but I never got that through Omar. He is he is not a sexy dog, man. Yeah, he's horrible. Like, at least Mock is fascinating while being a little bit terrifying. Mock was modeled after Mick Jagger, which, I mean, those lips. He has these sharp, angular, but also puffy lips. They're angular and puffy at the same time. Right, I mean, and they're all... I just, I, it's like if somebody filled Angelina Jolie's lips with glass, just shards of glass. Half the time, and I'm being generous when I say half the time, he's a bit over-rendered. Uh, yeah, those jowls, they had so much fun with his jowls. I couldn't look away from him, so if that's what they were going for. Mock was initially named Mock Swagger, but the Rolling Stones <laughs> threatened weak legal action. Storyboards were initially drafted by Ryan Larkin, who is apparently a very big deal in Canadian animation circles, although I hadn't heard of him before I started looking into this film. But uh, none of his art was used in the final film. The arcade game and the various computer bits were not CGI, once again. Uh, they were done with slip scans and back projection shot on an animation stand with colored gels and backlighting. At the time, that was cheaper than just having the computer do it. I'm just a little mesmerized by that, like, ever-existing being cheaper. The production of this started in 1978. Computers were new, new. 
Yeah, I know. I'm just, I actually feel young about something. It's nice. Yeah, we need to talk about old shit more often. Overall, the film had an $8 million budget, which almost bankrupted Nelvana. $8 million is a fairly modest budget. Uh, like, it would be a mid-level one for, you know, a big studio. But for a tiny animation studio, it's just starting out and doing its first feature. That's a pretty penny. Yeah, but, like, when you look at, like, the, the tweens and you look at the um, backgrounds, those beautiful watercolory backgrounds, it justifies the budget they spent. Like, I don't think anybody embezzled any money. Oh, yeah, and you kept going on about how the character movements were really smooth and easygoing, and the mouth movements synced up to the vocal acting very well, except with Omar more on that later. I hated Omar, but yeah, no, seriously, that's what I meant, like, the, the tweens are the in-between uh, frames. There's right. No, yeah. All right, let's go into the voice cast of this. When we say more on that later, right now. <laughs> All right, Omar in the Canadian version is voiced by an actor named Greg Salata. However, when this film was picked up by MGM and United Artists for American distribution, they really disliked Salata's performance. So a uh, voice actor named Paul Lamatt was just sort of awkwardly redubbed into the film. And that's why he feels a little off every time he talks. They picked that voice over something else? Yeah, the Canadian version and most of the physical media re-releases have Salada's original performance. Most of the people who are obsessed with this film consider uh, Paul Lamatt to be a millstone around this film's neck. Some of them even blame it on it tanking at the box office. It's wicked. Like, his performance is super flat. Omar's singing voice is Robin Zander of Cheap Trick. I'm not a huge Cheap Trick fan. And they do kind of stick out like a sore thumb when you look at the other musical acts in this, even more than Earth, Wind, and Fire, because most of the other people are at least somewhat related to, you know, punk and new wave, and Cheap Trick is just, you know, butt rock dad band. Yep, even at the end, he's trying to, like, out-diva Blondie. Nobody out-divas Debbie Harry. Speaking of which, Angel is voiced by Susan Roman, and you might know Susan Roman if you are fond of anime, especially if you're a millennial, because she's Sailor Jupiter. Jupiter. Yeah, she is one of the only English language Sailor Moon actresses who was there from the beginning to the end. Like they had to recast every other character at some point or another, but she's Sailor Jupiter the whole way through. I watched all of that in Japanese, so like I don't, I don't know what her American voice is. It's just really exciting because she's, she's so sweet. She's the one that she takes really good care of her friends. Ryan, really good care of her friends. I thought they all look after each other. Then I mean, I I barely know magical girl anime or Sailor Moon, so I'm gonna have to take your word for it. Not the outer planets, and certainly not the Sailor Stars. I didn't even know there were stars. All right, uh, and Susan Roman's singing voice is Debbie Harry, better known as the front lady for Blondie. At the time, she was still in Blondie, not solo yet, and not putting Blondie back together where it's just her solo career, but she's calling it Blondie. Yeah, that's more of what I was familiar with, so I'm like, oh yeah, there are other people there. (laughs) I I mean, that effect is not unique to you. Uh, The entire rest of Blondie is just Jan Brady. (laughs) While Nelvana had considered Mick Jagger, Freddie Mercury, and David Bowie to voice Mock, they couldn't afford any of them, so they picked a Canadian voice actor named Don Franks, and he grows on you. He's got a good supervillain voice. Oh yeah, no, it's very sexy. It's got that gravel with the, like, Mock at the end of it. I liked it. I'm sure he voiced a lot of 80s cartoon bad guys. I would have been down for it, yeah. Yeah, he does have a sort of that guy vibe. I'm sure he popped up in something. Uh, I should have crawled through his IMDb more extensively because I didn't find anything I could recognize. But yeah, he's probably popped up in something like that. 
Now, he has two singers doing his songs. Lou Reed does Mock's theme song, My Name is Mock, as well as a bit called Triumph, which is briefly flashed on the screen as the protagonist band is mesmerized by the Edison Balls. You kind of have to roll with it because while Lou Reed and Iggy Pop are, you know, both related to the punk movement, they both had their classic albums produced by David Bowie, they're very different singers from each other. Oh yeah, they sound like nothing alike. And then a guy named uh, Greg Puffell is Stretch. I don't really have much to say about his performance. I just bring this up because apparently Howie Mandel was first cast as Stretch, but then he moved from Toronto to L.A. while he was voicing his part and just got so busy that he couldn't finish it, so they had to cast some other guy at the last minute. So that guy was almost Howie Mandel. Broke my brain a little bit just because of like how I know Howie Mandel from like you know cheap cable. I know him mostly through Bobby's World, but he also hosted a game show when I was in college. Yeah, our our mom really likes him. He does like a bunch of like talk shows. I can see that he's got a nice friendly voice. That's a good place for him to be. One other character I uh, wanted to bring up was Aunt Edith, who is a very minor presence who is only in one scene, but this is the first credited film role for Catherine O'Hara. If you know Catherine O'Hara, it's primarily as the mom in Home Alone, but she's also in a bunch of Tim Burton movies. She's Sally in The Nightmare Before Christmas. She's Don Dietz in Beetlejuice. If you're familiar with Christopher Guest's mockumentaries, she's in uh, Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, and A Mighty Wind. So this is where she got her start. It's an interesting start. You gotta take your first paycheck somewhere, I guess. As I mentioned before, this film was picked up for distribution by MGM, but the executives were immediately confused by its adult themes and gave it an extremely limited release. It was only in a couple dozen theaters for a couple of weeks. It didn't do well? It didn't do well. Once again, I mentioned it uh, had an $8 million budget. It made $30,379. Well, I am not sure how Nelvana survived something like that because they're still operating. Then the budget for the film almost bankrupted them. Maybe they got a lot of support from Canadian government. As I mentioned on an earlier video about Blood Quantum, the Canadian equivalent for the National Endowment for the Arts is a bit more supportive of Canadian artists than we're used to uh, in the United States. So maybe there was a bailout going on. I don't know. But Novana was able to crawl from the wreckage of this. And yeah, this film was a giant wreck. It was their Black Cauldron? Yeah, except it was the first thing they ever did. (laughs) The film got uh, VHS and Laserdisc editions, but it was printed in limited capacities and soon went out of print. Bootleg copies became very popular at comics conventions, although it was common to misattribute the film to Ralph Bakshi. Which I can sort of see where they're coming from because it's adult animation. We didn't have like South Park or Family Guy or even The Simpsons at that point. So if it wasn't explicitly meant for kids, you would assume it's by Ralph Bakshi. But this does not look like a Ralph Bakshi film based on the character designs. Yeah, I mean, they have knees, but like everybody else is like super stringy. And those goof troop faces. Bakshi didn't make his characters look terribly Disney most of the time. Yeah, there were butts in this, but there weren't enough butts. Also, the animation is too good. The quality is too high. (laughs) You janky Lord of the Rings directing man. (laughs) 
the original print of this film was destroyed in either a fire or a flood. I couldn't find confirmation one way or the other, but the negatives are gone forever. For a while, the only way you could get an official copy of this film, like not a grainy bootleg at a comic convention, is if you wrote directly to Nelvana, and if you gave them $80, they would custom create and then mail you a video copy of the film. Eventually, because of its growing cult rep, Rock and Roll got a DVD release in 2005. It featured both the theatrical and original cut of the film, like the American and the Canadian version. A Blu-ray release followed in 2010. As I mentioned before, both are out of print. However, if you're really curious after listening to this episode and haven't watched the film yet, you can probably find a passable uh, version on the YouTubes. But apparently you don't get the Canadian version, you get the American release. Yep, all of the things aforementioned. Oh, one other thing. In later versions of the Canadian film, Zip, the henchman who sacrifices himself in order to save Omar and Angel, you get a little scene where he, like, sort of wakes up. Like, like, like oh, Zip turns out to be okay. Okay, his brother's not dead, threw his boss down a demon hole for no reason. That's mean. The lack of a proper release for this film meant that there wasn't a proper release for the soundtrack album either. This also might be due to the fact that most of the artists on here were all signed to various labels at the time, and maybe there was some conflict going on. But either way, no record company felt the need to put out an, an official vinyl or cassette or CD release of Rocket Rule, and that is true to the present day. You know, I can understand that, though, because a show that I really like is caught up like that. They're never going to release it because of all of those, like, conflicts with the different labels. Cold case, I miss you. You were terrible, and I loved you. Come back to me. The Cheap Trick songs on this were commercially released on a 1996 box set called Sex America Cheap Trick, which is a very cheap trick thing to name something. Uh, the Earth, Wind, and Fire song got a digital release in 2012. It's called Dance, Dance, Dance. Iggy Pop's Pain and Suffering was included as a bonus track on a 2019 reissue of Zombie Birdhouse, a record he put out roughly at the same time as this film. Debbie Harry retooled Angel's song, the one she sings at the club, into Maybe For Sure, uh, one of the singles off her 1989 solo album, Deaf, Dumb, and Blonde. We're Americans, so we kind of forget that Debbie Harry even bothered trying a solo career after Blondie was in the middle of its breakup, but apparently she was a lot more successful in Australia and in Europe than in her own country. Like, Debbie Harry is a legit draw outside of the Blondie name in not America. I'm the wrong person to talk with about that, because I genuinely thought that she was Blondie. Once again, you're not the only person to think that. Uh, the soundtrack is kind of all over the place. Like, even though most of the artists are at least loosely affiliated with uh, the whole punk movement, I mean, Iggy Pop's approach to punk is quite different from, say, The Velvet Underground or Blondie. Yeah. And I don't think any of them are like a straight-up punk band in like one's mental image of it, like the Ramones or the Clash or the Sex Pistols. Like Blondie played at CBGBs along with the Ramones and the Talking Heads and the Dead Boys and all those guys, but they're still a lot more poppy, and I think the, you can comfortably squeeze them more into new wave than in punk. But and also. The songs are used weirdly in this film. Even though there's a lot of songs used in rock and roll, I have a hard time calling it a musical with a straight face. Yeah, it's more that it just sort of stops the plot instead of, like, supporting it and adding to it. And you don't get the full song either. You get maybe 20 seconds, and while that's going on, the characters are talking over it. Yeah, that does happen a lot. 
They're yeah. competing. Like, I can't tell if I like any of these songs or not. I can't get the mock one out of my head. You, you do get a bit more of uh, Lou Reed's My Name is Mock than any of the other ones. And there's a part where he's just calling out, like, the singing girls to do backup for, which, you know, draws parallels to Walk on the Wild Side, which is, I mean, My Name is Mock is not nearly as catchy as that one. So that's a bad thing to draw to yourself. But, uh, yeah, maybe that one kind of works if you're into early 80s Lou Reed. You think he's joking, but he's not. <laughs> I quoted the song for those of you who haven't seen the movie, which is going to be like all of you. All right, now, with all those bits out of the way, let's start talking about the themes of this film, which I had to dig pretty deep to find something to say. This is <laughs> this film does not have a deep plot. Uh, is there anything you'd like to talk about before I get into my ideas? Um, yeah, I want to talk about the basic Ursula shit that's going down. Like, the fact that Mock is all about, like, needing Debbie Harry's, like, Ariel voice to summon a demon kind of pissed me off a little bit. Also, the part where bored Debbie Harry and lead singer of Cheap Trick are damning Mock to hell with their listless singing at him. That sort of felt to me like an inverted Little Mermaid scene, even while I was watching it. Yeah, I was getting exactly that. Same vibe, so it's like a little bit kind of pissy. But the fact that like you were tying it in with a Little Mermaid earlier made me really happy. And I'm like, ooh! <laughs> uh, let's see. I actually enjoyed this movie a lot, so I feel bad being so mean to it but it bothered me too that there are only three types of characters in the entire movie you're either evil dumb or you are bland yeah cinderella kind of bugged me out that way too because she's just she doesn't actually need to be in the movie no she didn't she's just like this big klutzy kind of top heavy she's she has this mini mouse vibe where she has the same body type as the henchman but they're still giving her panty shots and she's just there to be dumb and to sneak her out of the building and get angel into the club and once they're there cinderella just disappears from the movie again yeah and like i don't know because she's she's talking a lot about how she's a modern woman and how guys don't understand modern women who just need to be out there and have some freedom and have a little bit of fun but then it's like a negative thing I'm not sure what they were going for with her. Yeah, it was very much, a lot of it was othering. And like, if you aren't Angel and you're a female in this movie, you're just there to be mocked. That kind of makes me think of the idea of, like, Disney is such a monolithic presence in the field of animation. It's hard to imagine what animation would have been like if Disney hadn't become as big and as sort of oligarchical as it was. Just this giant octopus spreading throughout animation and just defining it almost on its own for 50 years, as opposed to now where it's a much smaller company. Yeah, he said knowingly. <laughs> But yeah, everybody else who made animated films from, like, say, Snow White until now were uh, either imitating Disney crassly or trying to go in the opposite direction of it, which is another form of influence. And I think that's another reason why everyone assumed that this is a, a Ralph Bakshi film, because it's like, it's a cartoon that kind of looks like a Disney movie if you squint, but there's nipples in it. That's a Bakshi thing, I guess. Only he can do that. And, well, this is something I bring up in every single episode where we do an adult animation movie, but just the boxes that we keep ramming them into. The idea that if you aren't a kitty Disney movie, you can only be this, like, vulgar Family Guy South Park thing. And, like, there are so many other directions you can take it in. And Rock and Rule seems to want to go in a direction, but it's not quite sure what. It got stuck between just Porn and Don Bluth. Yeah, I fell between Porn and Don Bluth. <laughs> 
and I think it wants to, like, comment on alternative lifestyles and the punk subculture, but it doesn't quite know what it's gonna say about either of them. It's like, yeah, there's punk rock guys and roller skates. And to shoehorn in a very flat love story that we're not really gonna talk about, but sex and cars. Yeah, Omar and Angel, like, I keep forgetting that they're a couple while I'm talking about this movie. Like, when, when they're invited to Mock's mansion, they're, like, necking in a car while, uh, like, a 50s doo-wop parody is playing because they're on, like, in Lover's Lane or something. And, uh, like, oh, yeah, they're they're into each other. And there is character development. Like, Omar's character arc is that he's jealous of Angel being the star and then he just sort of has to learn how to get over himself and accept her as, like, a colleague and not just an appendage to his own artistic genius. But the film barely comments on this. It just sort of brings it around at the end where they're banishing the demon together. I'm going to argue that it's not a colleague. She's better than him the whole time. Oh, everyone in the band is saying, like, oh, yeah, she's the lead singer. She should be the lead singer. And, like, Omar's idea of becoming a better man is be like, oh, we're equals. <laughs> No idea how this guy is supposed to be James Dean. <laughs> Am I confused? Did James Dean just have, like, bright red hair and black, black eyebrows? No, he didn't. But I think James Dean's ongoing mystique, other than the fact that, you know, he died extremely young after making only three movies and at the height of his popularity, that's how you sort of become an icon. But the other thing is that he was the first major Hollywood sex symbol who wasn't traditionally masculine. He was little Femi pretty boy. Okay, so like everything that I have seen of him, I'm not I'm not just confusing him with someone else. Well, he's only been in three movies. You've seen Rebel Without a Cause. That is one third of everything he's been in. Yeah, but also pictures online. Yeah. Somewhat related to this is the idea of cyberpunk, which is briefly hinted at this film, at least in the aesthetic sense of it. You can't swipe for Moebius without looking at least a little cyberpunk. The idea of all this high-tech gadgetry happening in a lowbrow civilization where there's just teeming masses of filthy vermin-rated filth. Yeah, and the uh, the power plant and how heavy and important it is to have like the electricity and the juice. Yeah, this kind of looks a little bit like Blade Runner because Moebius. I don't know if fun's the right word, but I I keep talking. Oh, I love Blade Runner, but I don't know if it's fun. I think it's fun. Well, I gotta do an episode on Blade Runner at some point because I keep talking about other movies on this show and we're like, this kind of related to Blade Runner. And now you can like dub in at the end, just put little links at the bottom. See this episode when you do it. It'll be good. Yeah, sure. Okay, and yeah, that's about everything I could wring out of this in the thematic front. I had to struggle a bit. Is there anything that in your notes that we haven't talked about yet? Well, we haven't said Waldo nearly enough in this episode, and I really want you to like put in like a sound effect to like notify people when they listen to it that we're using it. Cinderella is the one who says Waldo, in case that isn't glaringly obvious. I was so happy! It just, it finally tied it back to Chopping Mall. Yeah, as Waldo is mentioned in Chopping Mall, I was actually groping for which one of the prior episodes we did where Waldo came up. Yeah, I never let it go. It's just been there in my brain now. And I'm like, oh, it was there. He said, she said Waldo. Hashtag beef did nothing wrong. Hashtag beef did nothing wrong. It lives on. Omar, I maintain, is the main character, despite the fact that he is probably the most boring, bland main character you can have. 
I mean, when I was looking over plot synopses and analysis for Rock and Roll, I was led to believe that Angel is the main character. I still think she kind of is, but yeah, you can make an argument for Omar. Yeah, because he has to go find her. It's not like she's trying to find him. She could probably do better without him. And yeah, Omar has a character arc, whereas Angel, she's pretty static. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's just a good person. She didn't need to grow. I mean, not that you can't be a protagonist and not be static. I suppose. But then you're like a very boring Master Chief kind of protagonist. Yeah, or the man with no name. Okay, well, is there anything else that you would like to bring up? I, I noticed that you wanted to mention something about the Affordable <laughs> Care Act. Actually, yeah, just that it definitely dates movies. You can always tell if they came out before or after, and it's nothing to do with the animation quality. Just the character of, like, the brothers being evil and stupid and them calling them pinheads and just, like, really leaning into that. The Affordable Care Act of 2010 really changed that because it forced um, a lot of inclusion so people had a lot more exposure to people with exceptionalities. It would be way... I wasn't going to mention it because I was like, oh, this is just going to drag things down and be really boring and a little bit sad, but also like, yay, it's nice that it exists, but oh, no, political things going on now. It's going to go away. If... People are still listening to the show after certain prior episodes. I don't think any of those things are a concern. Although I should point out that this film is Canadian. Yeah, okay, fair. Okay, well, if that's everything, I believe that is Rock and Rule. Thanks for joining us. We will do another episode next week. See you then. Don't be a Waldo.